All right, Exodus chapter 18. Please open your Bible and follow along with us if you would. We'd be grateful for that. Uh, Love having your eyes on a page. As I remind you all the time, we are dependent on the Word of God. And, uh, and it's important that you look at this word as a guide for your life as well. Exodus chapter 18. In 2004, a movie was released called 50 First Dates, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. And uh, it, it was a hilarious movie. It's been a long time, but it cracked me up because uh, Drew Barrymore's character, Lucy, can only remember one day. And at the end of the day, she forgets it and starts the next day as if it were the last day. And so, of course, Adam Sandler wants to date her. And so every day he has to win her over again, introduce himself, make her fall in love with him. And then she forgets. And the next day he starts over. It sounds completely exhausting. But uh, the movie worked out in in a hilarious way. And it, it was a lot of fun, the movie was. But the whole idea is she had to get Get to know him every single day. You and I need to get to know someone. Um, it's not maybe the love of your life that I'm talking about or even a long lost relative. You and I need to get to know our king a little bit more every day. And as we come to the end of the first section in Exodus, I think Exodus breaks up very nicely into two parts. The first 18 chapters are about getting to know God. The the last half of of Exodus is is about drawing near to God. And we are going to come back to the last section of Exodus in January. We'll take a break for Christmas and do a great Christmas series. But as we wrap up part one, let me just remind you of what's happened. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Most of that is slaves. Through Moses, God delivered his people. We see the 10 plagues. Uh, ending with the, the 10th plague, the Passover, and then crossing of the Red Sea, God saving them. Uh, he protected them from an unprovoked attack by the Amalekites. And now they are moving towards Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And today Moses gets a visitor, his father-in-law. How fitting that we should talk about in-laws on Thanksgiving weekend. And so some of you are like, oh no, not my father-in-law. Well, okay, just because it's Thanksgiving, I I heard a great in-law joke. Uh, What's the difference between in-laws and outlaws? You can shoot outlaws. (laughs) Come on, work with me here. All right, don't knock the in-laws too much. Don't knock them because Moses' father-in-law is going to teach Moses something and teach the Israelites something really important about their new king. And in reality is they don't know God that well. The Israelites don't. I mean, he's liberated them out of Egypt and he's functioning as their new king, but it's kind of like an arranged marriage. They're still trying to get to know their king. First impressions. You know, God liberates them. He takes them through the Red Sea. They go out into the wilderness, and now Pharaoh is no longer their king. God is their king. So it's important that they make a first impression on their new king, and their first impression is to grumble and complain. And even in the midst of the grumbling and complaining, their new king provides for them. So then they get another chance. They obey God as he defeats the Amalekites with Moses' hand held high by Aaron and Hur. Last week we talked about that. And so their new king not only provides for them, but their new king defends them. Now today, they want to know God, but they don't know how. 
And they don't even know what acceptable behavior is. Their new king wants them to know him. He provides for them. He defends them. And now, today, we're going to see he wants them to know him. Uh, You and I need to get to know our king, too. In Christ, we, too, are part of God's people. Jesus, the almighty God, is our king. And we need to know him. The Israelites had Egyptian cultural nonsense plugged into their head. They had this cultural nonsense about gods and deities floating in their heads. And and we have the same kind of cultural nonsense about God in our head. You see, the truth is we make God out to be whatever we want him to be. And that's the message that we hear all the time. Who do you want God to be? Whoever you want God to be, you to decide, and that will be who God is. As if you, you and I could actually decide who God is. It's just cultural nonsense. The Israelites had 400 years of Egyptian deity nonsense in their head. We, rather than making God who we want him to be, let's get to know him for the rightful king he is. And it's a great way to wrap up this first half of the book of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 18 divides really nicely in two parts. And it forms a a, a two points to what I want to share with you today as we get to know our king. And the first one is this. Our king is the king of all people. Our king is the king of all peoples. All people groups, our king is the king of them. When Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, he found himself the victorious king over sin, death, and Satan. And Jesus now became the king of all those who have faith in the shed blood of Christ for faith for forgiveness of their sins. So we can rightfully call Jesus our king, whether you're Jewish or not. In Exodus, we learn that God, Yahweh, was the king of the Jews, but he has always had a heart for all peoples of the world. We could trace this way back to Genesis chapter 3, where we run into what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, the first telling of the gospel. We see that God has, has a heart to redeem his people. And then we see this all the way in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham, and God gives a promise to Abraham saying, Abraham, as many there are stars in the sky, so you'll, will you be your descendants. And I'm going to have a special people. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and Jacob has 12 sons, and these form the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see God creating this special people. But even back in Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, he said, you are going to be a blessing for all people. You see, God is the king of all peoples, not just the Jews, not just your nationality or ethnicity, not just Iowans or uh, Americans. God is the God of all people. God is king of all people. Now, the irony here in this is that Moses and the Israelites are still learning this. So this fact is going to be taught to Moses and to the Israelites by a pagan Gentile. Uh, Up to now, non-Jewish peoples haven't thought much about God and and his people, Israel. Here's how the non-Jewish people treated the Israelites. The Egyptians enslaved them. They committed genocide against them. And they oppressed them. The next non-Jewish people we run into, the Amalekites, uh, attacked them unprovoked. And so we begin to think, does everybody hate Israel and her God? That's what we come to when we come to chapter 18, verse 1. 
Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro is a Midianite. And if you remember back in earlier in Exodus, when Moses was running from, uh, from the Egyptians, when he, when he murdered an Egyptian and hightailed out of there, he spent 40 years living in the wilderness with the Midianites. They protected him. From age 40 to age 80, Moses hung out with the Midianites. Who are the Midianites? Well, in Genesis, we see that Mo- Midian was the son of Abraham, son of Abraham's second wife, Keturah, and not the promised son. Midian is not the promised son of Abraham. Isaac is. But nevertheless, he's a son. From here, the Midianites don't really have that great of experience uh, or great reputation. In chapter 37 of Genesis, the Midianites were the slave traders that bought Joseph and sold him to Potiphar in Egypt. Not a great start for the Midianites. In Exodus, they do welcome a 40-year-old Moses into their family. And here Jethro comes to the scene to offer advice. But by Judges chapter 6, a couple of hundred years later, they have conquered, the Midianites have conquered Israel and enslaved them. The Midianites were not God's chosen people, but God still cared about them. And God cares about all people. This is highlighted in verse 2. Read with me. So after Moses had sent, his wife, sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. Now, here the author pauses to remind us of what Moses' sons' names were. One of them was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer. For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Gershom, the first oldest child, means an alien there. That's what it means. Moses recognized when he lived in Midian, he was an alien. Eliezer means my God is helper. And so Moses is taking the time to highlight his children here as a reminder that God loves the alien and stranger. And God cares deeply, and is the helper to them. Moses remembers that he was once an alien, living with the Midianites, and God helped him. Now, so here we see Jethro comes onto the scene, and what an awesome name, right? Jethro, he brings Moses' wife and kids back. Moses tells Jethro about the amazing things God done in Egypt, and how God saved them. And so Moses is reporting to his father-in-law all that God has done. And look at verse 9, skip down. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He was delighted. Verse 10, he said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, the point here is that it takes at this moment a Gentile, foreigner, alien, stranger, non-Jewish person to highlight and bring glory to God, to the one true God. This is unprecedented. In this generation, this has never happened before. A Gentile has never stopped up to this point in Exodus and said, stop, I'm going to give praise to the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. But Jethro does that. 
Now look at verse 11. He says this. Jethro says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. It's really important to think about seeing the book of Exodus through the lens of someone who lived in the ancient Near East. And this is important because we know that there is one true God. But the Egyptians didn't believe that. The Amalekites didn't believe that. The Midianites didn't believe that. And at this point, even the Israelites don't believe that. God, over the course of biblical history, will reveal that truth through the course of the Bible that there's one true God. But at this point, they don't really probably, probably believe that. So what they think is simply this. There's a lot of gods running around. Typically, uh, one god would have uh, responsibility for a, a people or a territory. And so if a battle, for instance, would take place on a particular piece of ground, whichever god owned that ground was the god of that place. And this is the worldview which what they thought of. Jethro here stops to praise the god of the Israelites, he praises and he says that no God is greater. No God is greater than this God. In other words, the God of the Israelites, there's something special. Even when he goes into the territory of another God, he still is victorious. This is really important. The God king of the Israelites is getting praise from a foreigner. Now we get to verse 12 and we see something incredible happen here. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. So Jethro here brings some food and he offers a sacrifice. And this is a monumental moment in the history, not just of Israel, but in particular of Iowans. Because here we see the first reference to Jethro's barbecue. Right here in the text. If you wondered where it comes from, Genesis, right here. It, Jethro brought the barbecue. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure it was probably beef brisket and not pork ribs, but you know, I'm just saying. So Jethro brings the meat. I worked on that joke for a week, all right? Come on. <laughs> okay, Genesis chapter 12, here we go, verse 12 rather. So this is the first sacrifice in the desert. This is the first meal since the Passover. These are, this is a really important time. Jethro is bringing a sacrifice to God. Jethro does this. When we look at these first 12 verses, we think, okay, so Jethro shows up. He gives praise to God. They offer a sacrifice, have a meal together. What's the big deal? Well, you need to understand how unlikely a candidate Jethro is to do this. Jethro made God his king. And it makes us stop and ask this simple question. Jethro bowed a knee to the one true God. Have you? Have I? Have we bowed a knee to the one true God? See, have we acknowledged that God is greater than other gods? And oh, we do have other gods, don't we? I mean, we maybe don't have a God of the Iowans or... The Des Moinians, I don't know how you say Des Moinian. What's a person from Des Moines? A, a Des Moiner? <laughs> anyway, we don't have our, our, our God of Des Moines or our God of Iowa or even our God of the United States of America. We don't have our God of this, but we do have gods. 
Because we follow all kinds of other things as our king. Materialism, prestige. We bow the knee to our children, to physical fitness, to vacations, to property, to the God of, of freedom or the American dream, to political office, to employment, to even the Chicago Cubs. We all bow a knee to something, don't we? We all have gods. Every Thanksgiving, I'm reminded, I remind you to thank God for his good gifts. But let us never love the gifts more than the giver. Have we bowed? Is God your king? If he is, it means taking a knee and bowing to him in obedience. That's the first thing we can take from Jethro's interaction with his father-in-law. The second thing we can take from it is that God is king and he loves all people. Do you love all people? Racial tolerance is what our culture loves to talk about. It's all the rage right now. Inclusion is all the rage. But God does more than simply tolerate other people. God takes a step beyond tolerance and loves them deeply. The God King does more. And, and frankly, I'm grateful because most of in this, us in this room are Gentiles. We're, we wouldn't be part of this thing if God didn't love us and care for us deeply. He loves people of all different races. And in Romans 11, we see this grafting in of Gentiles into God's purpose in his people. But one of my favorite verses is from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 on this. When, when in the future, when we're looking forward to everyone surrounding the one true king and bowing and worshiping him, we see this verse. They worship him by saying, with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Everyone's gonna be there. It's gonna be great because God loves all peoples. Do you? If we're to embrace Jesus as our king, we must actively pursue the same kind of love that he does. We have to love people like he does. Um, I, I want to introduce you to someone uh, that we support as a missionary. His name is Brad Wass. And, uh, I, and I got, do I, did I put a picture? Yeah. Uh, Brad is on the, the left in the back and his wife, Patty, is right in front of him there. And, uh, and this is uh, a group that they're working with. Uh, 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 it's a, I think it's a Chinese church, and uh, I got a million pictures like this of Brad working with Africans uh, here in America, working uh, with with Hispanics, working with people uh, from with uh, Bosnian groups and groups from all over the world who have come here to America. Uh, and, and as part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, part of our district, our central district is basically Iowa, Missouri, and a little bit of Arkansas, and, uh, and, and that's our area. And Brad, it, we are the first district and only district in America right now to employ a full-time multicultural church planner. It's groundbreaking for us to be part of this because we recognize that God loves all peoples. He loves all peoples. Uh, it's one of the reasons we support Brad and, and what Brad, the work of Brad and Patty are doing here because we get it. I'm so proud to be part of this because we know that God is the king of all peoples. Jesus is the king. If Jesus is your king, you're part of a very diverse kingdom. When we said the word universal earlier, Catholic meaning universal, 
in the Apostles' Creed, we simply recognize this, that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We're part of all peoples in the kingdom of God. Your king is the king of all peoples who place their faith in him through Jesus Christ. There's a second thing I want you to know, and the second thing is that our king not only is the king of all peoples, but our king wants to be known. He wants to be known. Um, By this, I don't mean to say that God has a need. God doesn't need to be known, but he does want to. It's part of his character. So let's look at this uh, account here. Jethro kicks back and he watches his son-in-law go to work. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be that thrilled about having my father-in-law come uh, and just watch over my shoulder and watch me work all day. But that's what Jethro does. He comes and hangs out and says, I'm going to watch my son-in-law work. Let's read the last half of this book together, uh, this chapter together. The next day, Moses, verse 13 of chapter 18, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone, said his judge? Why all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered, well, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. In other words, you're crazy. Verse 18, you and these people who come to you will only wear themselves out. The work's too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain. Appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all the people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. They served as judges for the people at all times, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. It's so tempting when we read this uh, account of what happened to make this about leadership and delegation. I mean, at the surface, it looks like it. So Moses was doing it all. Why not divide up the work and and let other people, bring other people in on this? Um, It's tempting to do that, and so many have. Uh, At staff meeting this week, we were sitting with our staff, and and I was thinking ahead to this passage, and and, uh, before I had really studied it and dug into it, that's what I did. I said, okay, staff, uh, here's a good principle. Uh, How many things are you doing yourself that you should be training and entrusting others to do? And there's truth to it. We, We all like a little control in our lives, don't we? We're like, well, nobody can do this job as well as I can do it, so I'll just do it myself. Guilty. 
It's easy to make this passage just about that, about delegation and training and equipping of others to do the work of ministry. And it's true. Jesus didn't make disciples by saying, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Uh, In fact, you could argue that Jesus didn't accomplish very much. After he ascended into heaven, he had like 12 people trained. One of them didn't work out so well. And 11. I mean, you could argue this. And yet Jesus changed the course of history. I don't think the reason that's, though, the reason that this text is in Exodus. Because if that's the case, we have to stop and assume that Moses is stupid. We have to assume that someone uh, 1,400 years before the birth of Christ was just an idiot. He had never heard of delegation. Delegation is a modern thing, right? People of old didn't understand that. He was just stupid and had to think that he had to do it all himself. That is not the reason that this story is in the text for us. Moses wasn't stupid. He's taking this seriously. He knew about delegation. What Moses was doing here was uh, he understood his importance in the role, in his role as leader of the people and ascertaining the will of God. The primary reason this is here, I think, is verse 15. When Jethro questioned Moses about it, look what he says. Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, he says, I decide between the parties and form them of God's decrees and laws. Moses at this point understands the importance of the people knowing their God, but they have no way to know what God expects of them, except for Moses. Moses is taking this seriously. The Israelites have a new king, but they have no idea what he wants. They don't know how he wants them to live. They don't know what is required in worship. They don't know what the laws of the new country are. Nothing's been written down. They want to know God's will, but they can't. So Moses tells them everything. You see, a judicial system that he sets up on the advice of his father Jethro is only a temporary solution. They need a law. And this is screaming at us as a transition to the second half of the book. Because Mount Sinai is coming in chapter 19. And when we come back in January to look at this again, this text is screaming at us, pointing forward to chapter 19. When we begin to flip the script and going from getting to know God to drawing near to God. Any Jewish person reading this text later on would have said, wait, they don't know God's will? They would have said, wait, why don't they know God's will? It's all written down in the Torah. And then they would say, oh, they don't have the Torah yet. They don't have the law. Mount Sinai hasn't happened. They need to understand who God is. God wants to be known. It's not a need, but it's part of his character and a desire. You were made to know God and God wants you to know him. This system of delegation helps in the short term, but not, it's not a long-term solution. They need to know God's will. They need to know God's law. And at Mount Sinai, God will deliver the Ten Commandments. In 19, chapter 19, they're going to go to Sinai. In chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments written down. They need it. And even as we look forward to the coming of God's law here in in chapter 18, this foreshadowing, this pointing to this great need for them to have God's law codified and written down, 
even in that, it points to us as Christians to something greater, to something greater than simply the law of Moses. As great as this coming of the written law would be for them, they need something more. It's like an appetizer. The law, written law, will function as an appetizer for something more. Uh, it, it's like this. If you, if you were, say, you know, what's the greatest pizza in the world? And I would say it's Chicago deep dish pizza, all right? Now, you say, well, I live in Des Moines. Where can I get Chicago deep dish pizza? Well, there's two or three restaurants here that claim they make Chicago deep dish pizza. And you could go there and you could go, you know, that's pretty good pizza. And it is. But it's nothing compared to if you drive five and a half hours to the east and go to Giordano's and sit down with a deep dish pizza. Some of you here are from the Chicago area, you don't know how blessed you are. And to sit down with a little piece of heaven right in front of you, and you think, that stuff in Des Moines is just a shadow of the good stuff. When we get to the law, that's what we're going to see, that the, the desire for God to be known by, to be known by us, for, for this need we have to know God, the law is a shadow of what is to come. Jeremiah 31 points to this more. Jeremiah, hundreds of years later, says this, God says this through Jeremiah. Listen, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor like Moses was doing here, or a man, his brother, saying, know the Lord, they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And this screams of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It screams to us because we need to know his expectations, but it's not enough for just us to have a Moses or uh, that just tells us. It's not enough for, for you to just have a pastor who stands up here and preaches and tells you every week, this is what God's will. Otherwise, you'll be in my office all the time. I don't know. Should I go left or right? Dave, tell me, what's God's will? It's not enough just to have a leader telling you. And it's not enough just to write it down in a law that you can just check your boxes off. I did this, I did this, I did this. What we need is if God could somehow speak directly to us, if God could somehow write that law on our hearts, and yet we have this. For those of us who believe through faith in what Jesus did when he shed his blood for our sins, when we say he took the punishment that I deserved, when we believe this, we have the Holy Spirit of God, God's presence in us. He, wrote, he writes his law on our hearts. God wants to be known. And so he gave you his very presence and his spirit. And this is how we live. And Exodus 18 is not just about the importance of delegation. It's a reminder that we need the Holy Spirit of God speaking to us. And this transitions us right to the manger. You see, our king came near to us when we couldn't come near to him. Uh, this is Christmas time. We're, we're looking forward. We got the wreath up. We got everything here. It's Christmas time. 
And at Christmas time, we remember that God came to us in a baby. He, he, he drew near to us when we couldn't draw near to him. He came to us. And this is the message of the gospel. Our king wants to be known. He came to us. He gave himself for us. He rose from the dead victorious and sent us his spirit. This is our king. So our king is the king of all peoples. And our king is the king who longs to draw near to all peoples. I simply remind you today to stop and behold our king. To stop and worship him. And at this Christmas time to remember this. God came to us He wrote his law on our hearts when we believe in Christ Jesus. And he did this not just for you, but for all peoples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the shed blood of Jesus and the redemption that we have in the cross of Christ. And and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our king. And we bow at the manger and behold our king. And we bow before the cross and we bow at the empty tomb and you have written your laws on our hearts. And so in your kingship, let us continue to take a knee and bow before you in worship. We ask that you'd be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.